Ours is a podcast of the Forsaken. I am your leader, the Banshee Queen, the Dark Lady, and you are listening to Corpse Run Radio. For the Horde! This is Corpse Run Radio. We are the Forsaken. We are the Forsaken. The High Overlord falls. I trusted you. And so did they. Death comes, old soldier. Hello and welcome to episode 105 of Cops Run Radio. My name is Grant Negus and yeah, 8.2.5 is out and I'm not sure what to make of it. I totally see the storyline going in a specific direction, but I still cannot wrap my head around the fact that, uh, yeah, the Forsaken faction is basically void of everything that I feel that it is about, namely, mainly the Dark Lady. And also the term Dark Lady gains so many new aspects with the cinematic. So I'm interested in seeing what happens next, but I still can't shake the feeling that something is missing. And I know that many Orc players felt basically the same when Thrall left the mantle of Warchief behind, not so much with Garrosh. But still, I feel that, I don't know, the mantle of Warchief has been passed on so many times. And I think that it's a bit much. It was a bit much already. And given what we know so far with the story of BFA, and I'm totally biased with this, obviously, I feel that... The way that the story has taken the Dark Lady is not favorable to her. So I feel it's okay if she goes back into the shadows and leads the Forsaken from the shadows as she's done all these years. But that she totally abandons the Forsaken is something that I didn't expect, to be frank. With Derek Proudmore and Kalia Menethil, both being undead now, both being quote-unquote alliance side characters. I'm not sure what's going to happen. People say that Lillian Voss might step up to the plate, so to speak, for the Horde to represent the Forsaken Horde aspect, but I'm not sure, and... Uh, I mean, it would be okay. I can totally live with with Lillian being in charge, as I've stated quite a few times. 
Lillian Voss is my second favorite Forsaken character. So, yeah, I don't know. It's something that I have to analyze for myself a bit more. And I'm just not seeing a favorable outcome for the Dark Lady. And that's what bothers me the most. Besides that, I mainly played Classic pretty much since its release. And given the fact that Piera's voice is in there, so it's not Paddy, but it's Piera Coppola, along with the Night Elf version of the Dark Lady, and Verimathras, obviously, but that's beside the point. I mean, I we still have the Dark Lady there in Classic, so it pushes me the development in BFA, that is, it pushes me more towards the classic game experience because I just cannot fathom, I cannot, I don't want to say accept, but that's a bit much. I can't imagine a world of Warcraft without the Dark Lady as the leader of the Forsaken. I mean, yeah, so I'm rambling here. I'm just trying to let you know how I feel. I hope that we get some decent reveals at BlizzCon, which is exactly one month away today. So I hope that we get a... yeah, I don't know what to hope for. So let's get started with the show today. We have a double header from Noble, parts 1 and 2 of the Strathholm story. We have a myth of the World of Warcraft from Mad Season Show. We have a song from Charm. We have the B quest chain explained by Hazel. And we have a little history lesson from Hero Maradex with regards to the Warlock pet, the Voidwalker. And then we have the two latest WoW Classic with Creators episodes, namely episodes 4 with Pat Nagel and episode 5 with Alex Afraziabi. I really, really hope that we get more of these. I think there are like two more. If I remember correctly, they had five, six people sitting there, five, and because the main thing was number one, it wasn't numbered, I think we should at least get one more, and I really hope that we do. So, with that said, here is Noble with the first part of the story of Strathorn. Hello everyone! Last week we covered the story of the Eastern Plaguelands, which houses Strathholm, a place that deserves its own time in the spotlight as it played such a critical role in the story. This city was once considered to be the jewel of Northern Lordaeron, the largest city of the kingdom. It even housed the zoo. With all the different shops and places to check out, you could easily compare it to one of the major capital cities like Orgrimmar or even Stormwinds. The regional government, it was centered around this city, and like I mentioned last week, it was one of the oldest and most revered holy sites. No surprise that the Lancers file decided to have this city serve as a base of operations for the Paladins that were added to the Alliance ranks during the Horde's first invasion of the planet. A brand new order, known as the Knights of the Silver Hand. Right here in the city, at Alonso's Chapel, the organization was formed, with its first members being Turellian, Dafrohan, Gavarata Dyer, 
Tyrion Fordring and Uther the Lightbringer. Well met. They made all the difference in the war against the Hordes. Their light pierced to the darkness and chasing away the shadow, but troubled times would come to the Order and the city of Strathholm. It was here where Tyrion Fordring was placed on trial for saving the life of the orc Etric, as Etric, he'd saved his life in turn and he showed him honor. The old orc was tired of fighting, he just wanted to live out his days, but some, they would not let go of the events of the past. So it was that Tyrion was given a choice between duty and honor, and he decided to choose honor. Out of respect for his sacrifices, and long record of duty towards the Alliance, they were willing to give him the opportunity for a full pardon. All he had to do was to disavow his oath to the orc, and reaffirm his commitment to the Alliance. I will remain committed to the Alliance until my dying day. Of that have no doubt. But I cannot disavow the oath I took. To do so would betray everything I am, and everything we as honorable men hold dear. Honor, it meant the world to Tyrion. So with no other choice, Ufer then stripped him of his titles, his rank amongst the Order, his lands, and even the right to live amongst them. His future would be live out in exile in the wilds, away from his family. And he accepted the punishments, but he couldn't leave Etric to his fates, so he snuck back into the city to save the orcs from the gallows. Then Thrall and his newly formed hordes, they also arrived to save the lost brother. While they fought with the city's defenders, Tyrion carried Etric away. Shortly afterwards, Thrall and his forces, they showed up to take Etric with them, leaving Tyrion behind to live out his days. To stay alive and keep an eye on his family, like his son that was accepted at the chapel into the Holy Order just like his father had. Put your faith in the light! Now another to join the ranks, and probably have the most profound impact on Strathholm, that's of course Arthas Menethil, the crown prince of Lordaeron. In the time where the plague was spreading, he, together with Jaina Poutmore, they investigated what was going on. And soon enough they discovered Kelfuzad and his cult of the damned, their plans of infecting the grain, and not only murdering the citizens of Lordaeron, also have them come back as the mindless undead. Glad you could make it. Watch your tone with me, boy. You may be the prince, but I'm still your superior as a paladin. As if I could forget. Listen, Uther. There's something about the plague you should know. Oh no. We're too late. These people have all been infected. They may look fine now, but it's just a matter of time before they turn into the undead. What?! While Jaina was trying to come up with some way of fixing this, to fight back, to find a solution, Arthas bluntly and brutally stated, This entire city must be purged. He thought that this was the only option to save them. But Jaina argued that they didn't even know how many had eaten it, how many had taken a lethal dose, or what a lethal dose even was yet. They knew so little and couldn't just slaughter them all like animals out of their own fear. But what of those that are infected? They'll kill the children all the same. They'll try to kill them, and spread out from here and keep on killing. They're going to die regardless, and when they rise, they'll do things that in life they would have never, ever wanted to do. Wouldn't you rather die now than to die from this plague? Die a clean death as a thinking, living human being, rather than being raised as an undead to attack everyone? Everything that you loved in life? In all honesty, that would have been Jaina's personal choice, but they couldn't make that choice for all of them. But Arthas saw it differently. They needed to purge this city. It was the only solution to stop this plague right here, right now, dead in its tracks. They don't have the time to gather the current whore and figure out a solution. They had to act now, or it would be too late. 
You've just crossed a terrible threshold, Arthas. Jaina? I'm sorry, Arthas. I can't watch you do this. The thought came to him, brief and bright and sharp. Was she right? No, 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 she couldn't be, because if she was right, then he was about to become a mass murderer, and he knew that wasn't who he was. His forces, those that decided to stay with the prince, they backed him up on this. They'd rather be hacked into a thousand pieces, then be turned into one of them on death. And so it was that they moved into the city. The ones that had risen, they were easy. They were the enemy after all, human no longer, but the vile characters of what they had once been in life. And smashing their skulls or slicing the heads off, it was no more of a hardship than putting down a rabid beast. The others, they looked up at the armed men, at their prince, in first confusion and then in terror. I can only help you with a clean death. That was just the beginning. At first, most of them didn't even reach for weapons. They knew the Tabards, knew that the men who had come to kill them were supposed to be protecting them. They simply could not grasp why they were dying. Pain clenched Arsa's heart at the first one he struck down. A youth barely out of puberty, and he absolutely realized that his hammer was no longer radiant with the light. Perhaps the light too grieved the dire necessity of their actions. Then he thought he would get easier, but it didn't. It just got worse, but Arthas refused to yield. The men looked to him for an example. If he wavered, they would too. And then Melganus would triumph. So he kept his helm on, said he would not see his face. And it was he himself that lit the torches to burn down the buildings. Buildings full of screaming people locked inside. And he refused to let the horrible sights and sounds slow him down. It was a relief when some of the citizens of Trefholm finally began to fight back. Then the self-defense instinct kicked in. They still didn't have a chance against professional soldiers and a trained paladin, but it did mitigate that horrible sensation of, well, as Jaina had said, slaughtering them like farm animals. How long it took to slaughter every living and dead person in the city, Arthas would never be able to tell. But at last it was done. Melgana still waited for him, taunting him to follow to Norfriend. And that's exactly what our prince did. I'll hunt you to the ends of the earth if I have to. Do you hear me? To the ends of the earth! It was three days later, when Jaina walked the streets of what had once been a proud city, the glory of Northern Lordaeron. Now it was the stuff of nightmares, the stench, it was almost unbearable. Fires that had ought to have consumed themselves, or at least have abated slightly from the lack of fuel, they continued to rage at the full heights, telling Jaina that some dark magic was afoot. So much death. I can't believe Arthas could have done this. They lay as they had fallen, most of them unarmed. Tears welled in Jaina's eyes and slipped down her cheeks as she moved as if in a trance, carefully stepping over the bloated bodies. A soft whimper of pain escaped as she saw that Arvis and his men, in their misguided mercy, had not even spared the children. Would these bodies, lying still and stiff in death, have risen to attack her if Arvis had not slain them? Perhaps, many of them certainly. The grain had indeed been distributed and consumed, but every single one, she would never know, nor would he. And of course, did less to Arthas, following Malganus to Northrend, then picking up the curse blade Frostmourne to claim his vengeance, but also become an agent of the Lich King. While Jaina took the survivors of Lordaeron and eventually met up with Thrall to save the world, Arthas would return home and murder his father, now working for the very thing that he so desperately tried to fight against. 
the plague had only been beginning as the scourge washed over their lands. That is how Stratholm turned into what we know it as today, and even to this day, people are still discussing if Arthas made the right call or not. If they had decided to leave Stratholm alone, would then Lordaeron have fallen to the army of the undead, marching out of its gates, instead of Arthas returning home? Would the prince have made a difference in the war against Archimond? It's all very difficult to predict how things would turn out. We do see in a later campaign that the Kirantor, they've come up with a way of creating an aura that would only hurt the undead and not the living. Imagine them creating such an aura around the city while evacuating its citizens. I mean, at the end of the day, not even Arthas was certain about his choices, and that doubt is then reflected in the light, not fully coming to his aid. Interesting stuff to debate about, that's for certain. But all the same, Strathholm was purged, while Arthas' choices led to a whole bunch of destruction and death. He would merge with the Lich King, and time would play out the way that we know it. That's why it's so interesting to see that apparently the infinite drag of light, they wanted to stop him, for whatever reason they might have. Their motivation is still not fully explained in detail, but what we do know is that the infinite Dragonflights, they're a corrupted version of the bronze Dragonflights. They are the guardians of time, meant to make time flow as it's supposed to, and their corrupted counterparts, they've tried to mess with certain events. For example, they've tried to stop Medivh from opening the dark portal, they tried to stop Thrall from escaping Durnhold, and here we see them trying to stop Arthas from going to Northrends. Prince Arthas Minotaur. On this day, a powerful darkness has taken hold of your soul. The death you are destined to visit upon others will this day be I do what I must for Lordaeron, and neither your words nor your actions will stop me. One possible explanation, that could be that without Thrall, there wouldn't be a horde to stand with the Alliance against threats like the Old Gods or the Legion, despite the death and destruction that Arsa's actions would bring. Without those actions, there wouldn't be survivors of Lordaeron to stand with the horde against our commands. And if that wouldn't be the case, then who knows what would happen to Azeroth. The flow of time and the ripples that it causes, they're very hard to predict, but we do know for certain that the Infinites, they're trying to stop the Prince. That is why we teamed up with Chromie to make sure the events played out as they were supposed to. And if you check out the inn, uh, you can actually find quite a lot of fun cameos. There's Frasiabi, there's Harsinger Forreston, you can find the Postmaster. Even Pamela's family is staying here for a bit until their tragic fate at Darrowshire. And beyond the doors, we discover that the Infinites have made illusions to prevent the corrupted grain from being detected. We then use our Arcane Disrupt to dispel it and make sure that Arthas has plenty of reason to purge the city. Then we move in together. Purging as we go, none of the undead nor the infinites will stand in a way of getting Arthas where he needs to go. An amazing chance to see this critical moment of Warcraft 3 finally play out in WoW. You performed well this day. Anything that Malganis has left behind is yours. Take it as your reward. I must now begin plans for an expedition to Northrend. With Strathholm abandoned, the mindless undead and fires now rule the once busy streets. It was a dark time for Lordaeron, but also a time in which amazing heroes were able to rise up and try to make a stand. Heroes like Alexandros Mograine and his legendary Blade Ashbringer, named for his ability to slaughter the undead and leave nothing but ash in its wake. While the Legion was eventually defeated at Mount Hyjal, the threat of the undead it was not so easily vanquished. One day, Alexandros, Dafrohan, and several others, they made their way into Strathon to cleanse it, but the undead, they were waiting for them, and in the struggle, Dafrohan was separated from his comrades. Ran into the hands of the Dreadlord Belnazar. Now he did not just kill Dafrohan, he took over his body and masked himself to infiltrate the Order and manipulate it from within. This is how the organization got infiltrated, how then the Scarlet Crusade was pushed further and further. 
he also set to work on corrupting Renaud Mograin, turning the son of Alexandros against his father. There was already a rift between them, since his father favoured Darien, his youngest child. And Belnazar, he preyed upon the darkness within Renaud's soul, convincing him to betray his father in exchange for great power and prestige. So it was that Renaud told his father that Darien had been kidnapped by the undead and taken to Strathholm. With all haste, Alexandros rode to the city, right into a trap again. Countless undead were waiting for them there. Mograin kept slicing them down, until these countless turned into only a few, and even those few fell before the might of the Ashbringer. The battle had been endless. Mograin was tired, and he had dropped his weapon. This was the opportunity that his son had been waiting for. As Renault appeared, he picked up his father's blade, and he stabbed him in the back. Alexandros was betrayed by his own blood, leading to him becoming one of the four horsemen, and his son then became the commander of the Scarlet Crusade. Infidels! They must be purified! The organization would go on to claim a portion of the fallen city, meaning that our questing adventures was separated by the Scarlet side and the Undead side. Now, I was planning to just cover all of Strathform in one single video, but to my surprise, there's just so much to talk about. We'll continue the story next week. We'll pick up right where we left it, enter Strathholm and talk about the events of classic Cataclysm revamp, some of the side quests that took place here. But for now, thank you very much for watching everyone. In this video, we'll be covering the most used warlock pet in the game's history. And that of course is the little blueberry. The Voidwalker was first seen in Warcraft 3, The Frozen Throne. Starting as a weird, lanky, eldritch horror, skeletal-like creep creature in the Outland tile set meaning that it was a neutral NPC on the map. Usually in small camps, they were killed to gather XP and items for your hero, to assist in fighting the enemy. Or during the campaign, they could be found defending portals and gateways. They could also be hired at mercenary camps to assist you in fighting your enemies. Now, oddly enough, these Voidwalkers started off with interesting spells like Cold Arrows, Chain Lightning, Frost Armor, Fork Lightning, and Devour Magic. Really, just a mess of randomly cold electric and magical abilities. Warcraft 3 famously had weird lore about its creep creatures. In World of Warcraft, it was by far the most used demon of all. If you needed DPS, you used the Fell Hunter, if you wanted an anti-spellcaster, or were Affliction. You used the Imp if you needed survival or were destruction, and if you needed crowd control or PvP prowess, you used the Succubus. But until the Fell Guard was introduced for demonology only, and the Infernal for a short time with a specific talent, the Voidwalker was the only choice for tanking and still is for Destro and Affliction, making it by far the most used demon of all for leveling, world content, or for when that tank in your group dies when the boss is only at like 5% health. If you needed a tiny on-demand tank, the Voidwalker was your go-to pet. This demon, known commonly in the community as the Blueberry, was the second demon you would obtain after the Imp, and the first of them to take a really long time to get. The Voidwalker quest was quite an interesting and even somewhat biased one. The Horde would first at level 10 go to their major city and speak to their trainer, then getting sent to collect a special item nearby. Undead going west a short bit and then coming back, while the orcs would go east into a cave. However, on the Alliance side, there was no quest for this in Ironforge for gnome warlocks. Well, there was, but it sent you to Stormwind, to then do the exact same one as the humans did to go all the way to the complete opposite side of Elwyn Forest to gather a specific item, and then return to Stormwind. Once you return to your major city with the item, you would use it to summon the demon, defeat it, and then you would be able to summon the demon whenever you wanted. The Voidwalker was, and always has been, the go-to default tanking pet, 
as the Felguard wasn't added until the Burning Crusade, and the Infernal wasn't capable of being a permanent tanking pet until much later. And these were spec-locked or talent-locked, leaving the Voidwalker as the most well-known tanking pet, as it was the default one, especially with its unique appearance. Because of this pet's unique power, and specific items and talents and ease to summon, this pet was very useful, allowing warlocks to summon mobs many levels higher than them. While all the other warlock demons were actual demons, the Voidwalker has been a troublesome piece in Blizzard's lore, as eventually Blizzard made the Void and demons separate entities, instead of them basically being the same thing as they were originally. If you've ever wondered why a warlock can summon a Void creature. Like the other three questing demons, the Voidwalker required a Soul Shard to summon, but there was a special trinket that, on a half hour cooldown, allowed you to summon the Voidwalker without the cost of a Soul Shard. This trinket could be obtained from a short quest from Impsy, the same Impsy who you worked with to learn how to summon the Infernal pet. And the Voidwalker was the only pet to get an item like this in vanilla, and was useful all the way until the Soul Shard summoning cost got removed. While the other choices on the quest were very good, including the Soul Harvester, this trinket was far too good to give up on that one single chance to get it, as you had to choose between this one or the Soul Harvester. You log on, go questing, then forget you have no Soul Shards, but you need your Voidwalker to tank for you, you use this trinket, and then you summon your Voidwalker with no cost and no need to worry. The Voidwalker had a few special abilities that made it very different from the others, First, it was the only pet without a damage dealing ability, and the only pet with a heal. Its first ability was Torment. Really, it was just a pet taunt. It increased the threat it generated for a bit, as it was Shadow, using Curse of Shadows on the enemy actually made this less likely to be resisted, on a pretty short 5 second cooldown. Second was Suffering, an AoE taunt that made it possible to gather aggro in large groups. However, it was not very good at keeping them. It had a 2 minute cooldown and again, shadow, so it could be resisted. It was a good way to gather aggro for multiple mobs, so it holds them while you kill the one it's focusing, or to hold large groups you accidentally pulled, so you could run away. Its next ability was Consume Shadow, an ability it was able to use out of combat, that at the cost of a bit of mana, allowed it to very quickly regen to full HP. Good for those times when your Voidwalker survives with just a tiny bit of HP, and you don't want to use Health Funnel or wait for the normal HP regen to fill it up. Then its last ability, Sacrifice. This is a unique ability for them that allowed you to, at the cost of instantly killing the Voidwalker, give the Warlock a massive damage absorption shield that would prevent the Warlock's cast from being knocked back while the shield stayed up. Now in vanilla, there was a few talents that affected this demon. The Master Demonologist talent gave both the Warlock and the Voidwalker 10% physical damage reduction and another talent called Improved Voidwalker, which made their spells 30% better, whatever that means, as none of their spells actually did damage. Funny enough, the Demonology Tree also had an Improved Imp and Succubus talent, similar to the Voidwalker one, but lacked a talent to improve the Fell Hunter too, specifically, for some reason. So you could take a talent to increase the effectiveness of one specific pet, but for only three of the four Warlock pets. And in vanilla, there was one more talent that worked with the Voidwalker called Demonic Sacrifice, which allowed you to sacrifice your pet for a powerful effect on the Warlock, but that was most commonly used on the Succubus for its 15% increased shadow damage effect. Its effect when used on the Voidwalker was to give you a health regen buff of 3% health every 4 seconds, 
making you a bit more tanky as long as you did not summon another demon. There was also many other talents in the demonology tree in vanilla, and some affliction talents that also affected the Voidwalker, but these affected all demons and were far too many to cover. The Voidwalker was also useful in vanilla raids, commonly used on Gar in Molten Core for example. Warlocks would banish the elementals, defend in Gar, and simply keep them banished the whole fight, with the Voidwalkers tanking them to make sure that if they broke free from their banish, it did not run over and one-shot an unlucky healer, instead hitting the Voidwalker for like half its health. The Burning Crusade brought the addition of the Failguard, who was both the DPS and tanking pet, however only for demonology, and with a specific talent, leaving the Voidwalker still as the most popular tanking demon since it was the only one usable for the other two specs. With the Burning Crusade we also saw the greater Voidwalker models. These Voidwalkers always seen with shoulder pads and sometimes even chest plates, but no bracers, which is significant because these were theorized to be normal Voidwalkers, as the ones seen on Azeroth wore only bracers, much like the elementals we see there. A theory being that the bracers seen on Voidwalkers were there to help keep them bound to the plane of Azeroth, much like how elementals are bound outside of their elemental planes with their bracers. However, it would not be till many years later when the Warlocks would be able to summon these empowered Voidwalkers. We even got to see Dementius the All-Devouring, a very powerful Voidwalker called a Void Lord, notice the lack of a space, that was the one who destroyed the Ethereal's homeworld, and is the reason they look the way they do. The Voidwalker, then in Wrath of the Lich King, got an overall buff to its stats both defensive and offensive, as well as gaining avoidance, drastically reducing pets AoE damage taken. Something given to basically all pets though. Consumed Shadows also got the buff that, while being channeled, nearby allies got increased stealth detection, cause I guess it consumes the shadows that rogues hide in or something? As well as a new demonology talent that allowed you to, every one minute, cast a demon specific buff. The Voidwalker increased its health and threat generation by 20% for 20 seconds. The improved Voidwalker talent in Wrath also had the Felguard buffs baked into it, meaning it was the only one of the pet specific buff talents to affect more than one pet. The Voidwalker, also with the addition of the Wrath of Lich King Glyph system, got the Glyph of Voidwalker, increasing its stamina by 20%, which kinda led to a trend of talents and abilities that affected Voidwalkers, generally did so in increments of 20 or 20%. Then in Cataclysm it got shook up a bit, but overall not much when it lost its Soul Shard cost. Torment became a DPS ability that did increase threat, and Suffering became an actual single target taunt. Then in Mists of Pandaria, the Voidwalker saw some of its biggest changes yet, as its spells were changed to the new energy based system instead of requiring mana, leading to a new era of the demons that overall made them far more powerful. First, the Voidwalker was given a disarm, pretty good for a warlock as this allowed warlocks to more easily deal with pesky warriors and rogues, although unfortunately this spell did not last long on the demon. Torment was still dealing damage but no longer generate a large amount of threat, basically just a damage dealing energy dump. Suffering still worked the same as a taunt, however it was more effective with more threat and a 30 yard range. Its consumed shadow was replaced with shadow bulwark. No longer able to heal itself out of combat, it now had a defensive cooldown. On a 2 minute cooldown, the Voidwalker could gain 30% extra maximum health for 20 seconds, kinda like the warrior's last stand ability. When set on autocast, the demon would only use this at 20% health to make sure it used it when it needed it the most, 
the extra health giving it a big temporary heal, and also giving it extra health percentages to make health funnel heal for more. And lastly, another new spell, Shadow Shield, with a short 10 second cooldown, it made the demon take 60% less physical damage for 30 seconds. And every time it was hit, it dealt shadow damage back to the enemy. However, that hit would also reduce its power by 20%. Warlocks also got the new and upgraded demons from a talent. The Voidwalker getting the Voidlord form, making it, yet again, 20% stronger. Voidwalkers really do love 20% and making it into the empowered Voidwalkers we saw in Outland. Larger shoulder pads and breastplates. There was also a Grimoire of Service to summon a second demon for a short amount of time, but it simply summoned it to taunt for you. Not the best demon to use this cooldown on. Other than, I guess, if you pulled far more than you can handle, or if your tank died at like 3% on a boss. And lastly, Mista Pandaria changed the specific demon glyphs all into one glyph called Glyph of Demon Training combining all the demon buffs into one, including the Voidwalker 20% health increase. Then with Warlords of Draenor, the demon's disarm ability was removed to go along with a lot of other changes in the same style for all classes. With Wad, Warlocks also got the model updates, including the Voidwalker, giving it some sweet abs. However, Warlocks also got Demonic Servitude, allowing Warlocks to summon the Infernal and Doomguard as permanent pets. And with the Infernal being a very powerful tanking AoE damage demon, meaning the Voidwalker had rough competition in the form of a huge stone beast. Threatening Presence, an ability that was a purely passive one for Felguards that increased the aggro generation of the pet, was also now given to the Voidwalker to help it keep aggro even more. As the player got stronger, the demon usually became worse at tanking as it did not scale as well aggro-wise. Then with Legion, Warlock saw the long-going Shadow Shield removed and the ability Torment, which had been on the demon since day one, gone. In its place was Consuming Shadows, an AoE life drain effect that it used constantly to keep AoE aggro and healing itself. The second being Void Reflexes, an ability added to the Failguard and Voidwalker to make them better compete with the powerful Infernal, giving them a 10% buff to dodge and parry. Lastly, the Voidwalker lost its Voidlord talent of Empowered Demon. However, they didn't lose the model for very long, as Warlocks who wanted the Empowered Demons were able to get glyphs to transform them into their upgraded forms. And thankfully, the Voidlord also got updated, making it unlike the rest of the Succubus, Imp, and Fellhunter, who, when upgraded with the glyph, became the old, unupdated models. Then, with BFA, the Voidwalker has seen little to no changes from Legion, the only one being that the Infernal is now Destro only, and cannot be a permanent pet. Meaning, the Voidwalker is the only choice for tanking for Destro and Affliction. Still beat out by the Felguard for Demonology Warlocks though, even losing the choice to be summoned with the Grimoire of Service talent, as the talent became only able to summon the Felguard, as it was the strongest Demonology pet anyway. And that is the end of the Voidwalker video, the most used demonic pet for world content, for the on raid encounter, for dungeons when the tank dies, and for almost all of leveling. This demonic blueberry and its unique abilities of being the only tank pet. Its niche, unlike all the other vanilla demons, has been completely left unchanged, even though it is not technically a demon. Also, I'd like to give big thanks to the editor of this video, Felplague. If you like this video, maybe follow him on his Twitter and YouTube channel, links in the description, and tell him which history of videos you'd like to see next, as he has big sway in which ones will be made. 
I don't know if I'd be able to continue this series if it wasn't for his help. My name is Patrick Nagel. I started working at Blizzard in 1997. WoW is actually the first game that I worked on. When I joined the World of Warcraft team, it was as a quest designer along with Jeff Kaplan. He and I were the very first two quest designers on WoW. First quest I made was Kobold Camp Cleanup. Uh, basically, you're a bunch of camp uh, kobolds running around. Uh, you had to clean up their camps. My name is Pat Nagel. There is a character in WoW with a, a name very similar to that. Alex Afrasiabi actually created Nat Pagel. He was making trainers, but he asked me, hey, you know, I, I need to make a fishing trainer. Can I name him after you? And I'm like, you know, do whatever you want. I don't care. Um, and then it just kind of took off, like, from there. Everyone knows who he is. He's way more famous than I am. When I was playing WoW Classic the first time, I went to our first pumpkin quest, where there's lots of pumpkins and there's lots of undead, and you had to pick like eight or 10 pumpkins and avoid uh, the bad guys. It was the first quest of its type. Now there's probably 200 pumpkin quests. We all had to come up with these things as we were making the game, but that one was like as seminal as it gets. I think there will be kind of this timelessness. You know, it will be this product, this game, that people can like always come back to and play it as it was originally. And it's just gonna be classic. And I love that. The world of Warcraft is nearly 15 years old, and over the years, many legends have been created. Some are true, and some are half true, and others downright ridiculous. It's a tale as old as time, going back to the days of the Loch Ness Monster, or Bigfoot, or happiness existing. You can save Eris in Final Fantasy VII, there's a nudity code for Tomb Raider, you can unlock Ermac in the first Mortal Kombat game, all because the phrase Ermax, which truncates error macros, appears in the diagnostics menu of the arcade copy of the game. As you'd imagine, the World of Warcraft has had its fair share of myths created throughout the years. Most of these I'll be covering will be from Classic. Not really intentional, it's just that back then, with the game being new and everything, it was much easier to believe all of this stuff. And also MMOs just being new to everyone in general, I think, you're more likely to believe that there are these super hidden secrets to be discovered, since the genre as a whole is on such a massive scale. Today, it's easy to say that, oh, that's stupid, who would believe that? But, back before everything was gone over 4,000 times with a fine-tooth comb, this stuff was actually believable. But, without any further delay, these are the top 10 myths of World of Warcraft. Starting small and working our way up, number 10 on our list is that the Molten Core was made in one week. Well, this is partly true, the environment was created in one week by the great John Stats. From the World of Warcraft diary, he describes his one-week escapade in making the iconic cavern. Did you know that there was originally a path from Golamang's room to Magmadar? It was only taken out after Jeff Kaplan deemed that it would make the raid too circular, preferring instead a more linear layout. So the environment was created in one week, which eventually turned into the raid was created in one week. Something I'm guilty of spreading myself, so this is partly me correcting my errors. In the following weeks, Jeff Kaplan did all of the spawning and creature placement, Scott Mercer designed all of the boss fights, Bob Fitch set up all of the loot, and Pat Nagel and Alex Afrasiabi handled the quests and attunement to the raid. 
While this doesn't make it any less impressive though, and the raid as a whole deserves a spot in the Hall of Fame, taking into account the new ground that it broke, in spite of the tight window in which it was created. For number 9, we have Glaive Weapon Types Pre-Legion. As you know, ever since the Legion expansion and the release of the Demon Hunter class, the Glaive Type weapon is now obtainable in-game, and before that in the Burning Crusade we had the Warglaives of Azanoth, but even prior to that, many players searched endlessly for these fabled Glaive weapons. Why? Well, just look at it. That's some ninja stuff right there. It just doesn't get any cooler than that. I'm gonna name my characters some variation of Legolas or Sasuke and dual wield these puppies. Like I said, it started all the way back in the release of the game. There were a handful of NPCs who held these fabled weapons, typically night elves such as the Darnassus guards or this boss found in Dyrmal, Prince Torthaldrin. I remember that people would farm him over and over in hopes of that ultra rare glaive drop, but it was all for naught. It didn't help that there were indeed glaive weapons in the game files though. Although they were still of the sword type, the Warglaives of Azanoth were datamined, and these had insane stats at the time, and you could even combine them together to form the Twin Blades of Azanoth. On equip, you're consumed by the Fury of Illidan, and you gain 1400 attack power against demons, and 20% more hit chance, and 30% more haste. <laughs> there is also the Glaive of the Defender, a legendary quality item, more designed for tanking, and having a proc that reduces damage by 75% for 10 seconds. As you'd imagine, these items became the objective of a massive scavenger hunt. Players turned over every rock, and even explored the dormant dark portal found in the Blasted Lands in search of Illidan. You name it, people have tried it, but it was never meant to be, as these items were indeed only found in the game files. And at number 8, we have rank 15 in Classic World of Warcraft. Every myth stems from a bit of truth, which is the case with this entry. As you may know, Classic World of Warcraft had the old rank 14 system. You started at rank 1, and depending on how many honor points you farmed, every week you would rank up and gain access to powerful items, consumables, and even access to a special building and even the local defense channel. At ranks 12 through 13, you'd get your purple armor set, and at 14 the weapons, along with some nifty titles, High Warlord for the Horde, and Grand Marshal for the Alliance. However, there is believed to be one more rank, even higher, called City Protector. Some believed that if you grinded enough at rank 14, you'd eventually reach this, which ended up being false. But like I said, most myths have a bit of truth to them. This rank was indeed planned to be in the game, and was even briefly in Blizzard's PvP guide on the official website. To obtain this, you'd have to be the number one player in honor farmed for the previous week, and of course maintain that for as long as you wanted to keep the rank. If you were successful, you would earn the prestigious titles listed here, and would even gain the ability to teleport to your race's major city. So Darnassus for Night Elf players, Undercity for Undead, and so on. I guess that they figured that the system was a bit too hardcore already though, so they limited it to rank 14 instead, and the city protector rank was lost to the ether. It was pretty troublesome though, because people still believed it existed, and with the way that the honor system worked back then, to rank up, you'd have to get more honor than other players of your faction. So you'd have these rank 14s still grinding honor like crazy for the non-existent rank 15, which made it harder for other players to rank up, and there's a lot of drama going around because it was such a hardcore grind, requiring players to play around the clock pretty much. It was quite common to account share even, but that's getting off topic. So rank 15 at number 8. At number 7, we have artifact items in vanilla. Similar to the glaive section, these finally saw a release in Legion, 
But until then, there are hints of these items in the game. In their original items page on their official website, it was listed with the other tiers of loot, and that's poor, common, uncommon, rare, epic, legendary, and artifact. As you can see, the color was undecided, and then later changed to red, and eventually this peach color. And with all of the data mined items, just like those glaives, people would search all of Azeroth for clues on how to obtain them. It didn't matter that in July of 2005, Blizzard updated their page to say they're not yet implemented. That didn't stop players from scouring every corner of the world, even in ghost form. Other artifact quality items would be Alex's Ring of Audacity, which increases your defense by a thousand, and you can consider yourself born again hardcore. Probably a reference to Alex Afrasiabi, who was a quest designer for the game back then. You also had Martin Thunder, which was a one-handed mace with some resistances, and an on-use effect that kills all enemies within 30 yards of you. And also its cousin, Martin Fury, which miraculously did manage to find its way into a player's inventory. I've told this story before, so I won't be super detailed here, but to sum it up, on accident, a GM sent this to a player named Karate Chop on the Vecnalesh server, who then used it to clear through all of the Wrath of the Lich King raids during the Eldwar tier. He was quickly caught, the item was removed, and he was immediately banned from the game. As for the rest of his guild, even those not in the raid, those who were online were suspended temporarily in a frantic effort of damage control. Yeah, screw that dude questing in Elwyn. Damn cheater. So maybe not technically a myth, since it was obtained through an extraordinary series of events, but still a pretty big myth in the game overall. And at number 6, we have Karazhan is enterable. This is a pretty big claim, but the myth itself never got too much credence, so I can't justify putting it too high on the list. Of course, this would be another vanilla myth, as Karazhan was released in the Burning Crusade expansion, but it was believed by many to be enterable, or at least interacted with in some way. I mean, it even has an instance portal, and taking a look at the nearby Karazhan crypts, there has to be more than meets the eye with this place. Referencing the Computer Games article from March of 2005, Issue 172, it even gives a preview of Karazhan as an upcoming raid. So naturally, players thought that it would be a thing in Classic, or that you could somehow zone into it. Those who managed to glitch through the gate, however, found that the portal was just for show. And as for the article, there were plans for Karazhan to be released in Classic, but due to one reason or another, it was pushed back to the Burning Crusade. And coming in at number 5, we have an oldie, but a goodie. Back then, there were many theories on how loot drops were determined in the game. Why did this boss drop this loot? The idea is that it has to be seeded from different variables, and there are many theories on just how it was influenced. One of them being that the raid leader, or even the first person to zone into a raid, had an influence on the loot tables. Like, we had good luck with drops with player X as the raid leader, and bad luck with Y, so we should always have X as the leader, or he should zone in first to the raid, so we get the good drops, and guilds were quite strict with it. My guild in particular would remake the entire raid if someone was foolish enough to zone in before the designated person, which was a pain since the raids were 40 man, and he had to have everyone zone out, hope that no one was AFK, and manually reinvite the right people again, and then rebuff. It took forever, but I guess it was something that they felt strongly enough to waste 20 minutes of valuable raiding time. It was of course never revealed just what influences the loot in the game and what doesn't, and it's something that's died ever since the advent of personal loot, thankfully. And next, we have the Bengal Tiger. 
Up until the Cataclysm expansion, there is rumored to be a hidden tiger mount in the game. It exists in the game files, and hey, look, there are even screenshots of it this time. Players once more scoured the earth in search of this mount, this time focusing their efforts in the Stranglethorn Vale Zone, which holds a selection of Bengal tigers, thus having a supposed connection. Eventually, through some tricky out-of-bounds jumping, a lone cave was found in these mountains. This was never designed for players to be able to reach, but there's quite a lot of detail put into it. You have this nicely lit path with a bunch of torches and crates scattered about, and this cave which holds these tarps. Why, these tarps must be made of Bengal tiger hide, players said, and thus the Bengal tiger cave was born. It was rumored that under certain conditions, a vendor will spawn in the cave and sell you the fabled mount. It only spawns at certain times, maybe once a year. Oh, maybe you need to have this cape equipped to see the NPC. Or maybe you need to be a hunter and have a tiger tamed as a pet. Hmm. Maybe, just maybe, it was a mount that was planned, but was just eventually scrapped, and the screenshots going around were from the beta of the game and never made it to release. The latter scenario was indeed the case, and no matter what players did, the Bengal Tiger Cave yielded no Bengal Tiger. Getting into the final three here though, next up we have the Emerald Dream. This does of course exist in the lore. As described by the Wapedia, it's a vast, ever-changing spirit world that exists outside the boundaries of the physical world, and it represents how Azeroth would be if intelligent beings had not altered its surface. Basically, a utopia of sorts. It was referenced in various ways, even in Classic. You talk with Malfurion Stormrage's spirit from the dream during the scepter of the Shifting Sands questline, but it was always believed that it actually existed within the game somewhere and that she could somehow access it. Well, it turns out that it does exist, but like with many others in the list, it's only in the game files. It was being worked on throughout the alpha version of the game, and it was believed to be a high-level zone for players to adventure in, and the Druid class in particular would have a close link to it. In 2003, Jeff Kaplan, the lead game designer, said that it was in the works and that it was shaping up to be extremely cool. The zone was meant to be endgame, it was very large, and was going to be exceedingly challenging. This was all said before release in 2003, so when the game launched, players eventually asked the question, well, where is it? In classic fashion, Blizzard maintained radio silence, which prompted many rumors and even hoaxes on how to enter the Emerald Dream. False directions being posted. Oh yeah, just keep going through fatigue water. It's somewhere over there, just keep going. Videos of people exploring the zone were posted, some of which providing no context. One of the most popular exploration videos back then was by Dopefish, who showed himself exploring various places, the Emerald Dream included. It was disclosed that it was all done on a private server, I believe, but it didn't stop people from trying to figure out ways to reach it. In this scene, you can see that he heroically slays a green drake and walks to the portal, and with some simple video editing, he's in. These green portals behind all of the Dragons of Nightmare world bosses were always believed to be linked somehow, which may have been the intent at some point, but alas, yielded no results on the real servers. It was only on September 2006, after the announcement of the Burning Crusade expansion, that Blizzard broke their silence on the matter and confirmed that it's not in the game, and also that there are no plans for it as of yet. Between then and now, players have flirted with the Emerald Dream through various quests, and even visiting the corrupted Emerald Nightmare Raid in the Legion expansion, but to this day, we've yet to see a full representation of the Fabled Zone. 
And in similar fashion, another one from Classic here is that you could enter the Outland. Lore-wise, this is the Orc homeworld of Draenor, now corrupted by the Burning Legion, and it served as the stage for Khadgar's campaign in Warcraft 2. This myth, of course, ended with the Burning Crusade expansion because we entered the official Outland, but it was believed that you could somehow enter the Twisted Realm far before that. I mean, the Dark Portal was in the game, so it was inevitable that players searched for ways to enter it, or at least come up with outlandish theories or rumors to find the Hidden Zone. As I said, most myths are based off of some truth, and it's the case again with this one. There were plans for players to enter the Outland in vanilla World of Warcraft. I mean, why have the Dark Portal on the login screen, right? But due to one reason or another, it was scrapped and saved for later. Either they ran out of time, or they just didn't expect just how successful the game was going to be. And once they said that, maybe they said, let's just save it for another expansion. However, just like the Emerald Dream, there existed a version of the Outland in the game files, of course not actually accessible by the players. This would later become the Hellfire Peninsula, and as you can see, this would be Honor Hold, where Cadgar and company took residence, and the zone as a whole has a lot of similarities to the final version that we received. It had a huge amount of work put into it, considering that it never saw the light of day. This would also be featured in Dopefish's exploration video, and players oohed and odd at the unseen lands. There must be a way in there. Maybe if I try to go through the portal on a level 47 naked gnome with nothing but a banana in my inventory. Hmm. There was also another version hidden away in the Deadmines instance, which still exists to this day actually. If you glitch through the wall with Slowfall, you can reach another work in progress of what's referred to as the Old Outland. And another red herring was located in the Ashara zone. In the depths you could find... a dark portal? Wait, don't we already have that in the Blasted Lance? Well, how do you explain this screenshot then? What you're looking at is an underwater dark portal found in the waters of Ashara. It was removed in the alpha version of World of Warcraft, but that didn't stop players from exploring the waters and searching for some remnants of the portal. The answer was simple though. Back in the alpha of the game, every instance had the dark portal as a placeholder for the entrance, and at some point, it seems like there were some plans for an underwater dungeon of sorts located in the zone, but for some reason, probably time, it ended up being scrapped. The screenshot remained though, and the zone would become one of many focal points of player's search of the Outland. But as much as we look back and laugh at the crazy things that players did to enter these zones, this one was understandable because it was actually referenced and hinted at in-game through the Corrupted Ashbringer event. Which leads me to number one on our list, and that's the thought that you could obtain the legendary Purified Ashbringer in Classic World of Warcraft. Come on, how could this not be number one? The Ashbringer was the weapon of the former High Lord of the Silver Hand, Alexandros Mograin, and when he fell at the hands of his son, he, along with his weapon, became corrupted and were made to serve Kel'Thuzad in death. He was one of the Four Horsemen, which was a boss fight in the next Ramus 40-man raid in Vanilla, and on the drop table, players could loot the corrupted Ashbringer to wield for themselves. The sword came with a variety of special effects, including creepy whispers from the last soul of Mograin himself. If you had it equipped, the Argent Dawn faction would become hostile to you, so you had to put it away whenever you entered their hub. And on the flip side, if you entered the Cathedral Wing of the Scarlet Monastery dungeon, 
you trigger a special event where the spirit of Alexandros takes revenge on his son. Going into a hidden chamber on the side and talking to the undead Inquisitor Fairbanks, he provides some information on the Cursed Sword, and he ultimately tells players to find his other son, a more devout and pious man he may never meet. It is rumored that he is able to build the Ashbringer anew without recording the old tainted blade, and that he resides in the Outland. This set off the biggest scavenger hunt in the game's history. Like I said, players tried every way possible to zone through the dormant portal in the Blasted Lands, the location of the removed portal in Ashara, there is a joke book that dropped from the Altric Valley Battleground called Nat Pagel's Guide to Extreme Angling, with all but the last page missing. It reads, and so that's where you'll find the legendary sword of the Scarlet High Lord, Ashbringer. Ain't it amazing what you run into in an ordinary day of fishing? Which prompted players to then fish for it in the waters outside the Stratholm dungeon, where Alexandros met his end. There were NPCs who referenced it, and even a datamined legendary version of the blade itself, so it was no wonder that players were scouring every corner of the world. After thousands and thousands of posts, it was confirmed to not exist in the game in early 2006, where the community manager, Ionix, stated that they'll only add it after casters receive their legendary. So once Nexramus came out and they got Antiesh, and now with that corrupted Ashbringer, players thought that it was in-game and it was just super hidden. Of course, when the Burning Crusade launched, everyone scrambled to find the last son of Alexandra Smograin, but even still, after going over every zone with a fine-tooth comb, he was nowhere to be found, and it was only in the Wrath of the Lich King expansion when Tyrion Fordring got the Ashbringer in lore did most players give up on their quest. Ultimately, as you know, we did eventually see the Ashbringer released as an artifact weapon in the Legion expansion. A bit anticlimactic, however, as every single paladin got it. Hey, wasn't this supposed to be a fabled, ultra-powerful mythical weapon? Hmm, well maybe there is a sale going on or something. But still, during the time, it goes down as one of the biggest myths in the game's history, with Blizzard themselves even referencing it. You can unlock the alternate corrupted appearance of the blade, and the whole process referenced all of the ridiculous things that players did in their hunt for the Ashbringer. Farming the Altric Valley for the book, killing these slimes in the Eastern Plaguelands, talking to random NPCs, and yes, even fishing in the waters outside of Stratholme. So I guess everything came full circle after all. But that's about it. This concludes the top 10 myths of World of Warcraft. Some understandable, and some downright ridiculous. Whatever the case was, I hope that you found the video entertaining. Like it if you liked it, and I'll see you in the next one. Peace. Farewell for now, mortals. We hope you enjoyed today's video. See you again soon. Here's my quest, I know you wanna take me Don't be acting shady, come on take my quest Here's my quest, here's my quest Wonder where I'll take you, wonder what I'll make you do Come on
Come take my quest, take my quest, take my quest I see you running this way Come on, click my portrait You could have my quest Take my quest, take my quest Wonder where I'll take you Wonder what I'll make you do Come on, take my quest I've been standing here for a while You could say, watching everyone Stand around all day You could be like me Giving quests, I feel free But there's just one thing You are not an NPC Wish I could for once leave the spot where I'm at I travel around the world Cause I heard that it's flat Dead minds here I come Cause there with the charms Or maybe no more gone Oh the on, more on Every day is just the same Wonder how I got this fame Just for an exclamation mark And a repeated welcome remark Give me money and XP Something honey now let me see Go to scary We talked about its importance for the kingdom of Lordaeron, Arthas and the Purge, and the corruption of Belnazar, which led to the death of Mograin and the formation of the Scarlet Crusade. As a fun side note, we also ran a straw poll as to whether or not Arthas made the right call as Strathholm. Around 65% of you, you agree with the prince. There was no other choice but to purge the city. Honestly, more doubt than I expected there to be. So, with Balnazar manipulating their organization, the Scarlet Crusade, they claimed a portion of Strathholm, meaning that our dungeon adventure, it could be split up into two different sides. Different names have been used over the years for them. I'm familiar with the Scarlet side and the Undead side. Now, back in the day, you weren't exactly stuck to one over the other either. Very similar to something like Marauden, where the different wings are all connected to one another. The same can be said for Strathholm. With the right key or the right way to unlock the gates, the entire city lay open for you. You could also minimize the travel time if you just wanted to do the undead side by taking the back entrance straight into that area. But first, let's talk about the Scarlet side. Let's by Grand Crusader Dafrohan. They hold a portion of the ravaged city. Massive packs of undead, they roam the city streets, with the occasional Eye of Nostrama showing up, alerting the forces that the living are in their city. 
if you don't kill them quickly enough, then reinforcement will spawn. There's also the occasional spectral spirit walking about. You have to be very careful with your AoE, as these spirits, they don't mess around. A Ghostbuster kind of quest. It gave you a weapon to zap them up. Or, you know, bring peace to the souls of those that took their own lives. They decided to hurl themselves into the myriad flames of the smoldering city, rather than become one of the Scourge. An optional boss you can summon here. That would be Postmaster Malone. The mailman, unfortunate enough to not escape the Scourge, and now hunts the city. He doesn't take kindly to those messing with his mailboxes. And that's exactly what you need to do to make him spawn. With keys from the Strathholm Courier, you can open them up, and I can't tell you how many times someone did this without letting the group know. The packs that spawn, each time you open them up, they can really, really hurt. So if you want to go for the Postmaster sets, at least let your group know. Near the Courier is also some of the finest tobacco found on Azeroth. The premium Siabi tobacco from Fresh Siabi. Men, as far as Calteris, spoke of the legendary Fresh Siabi's premium tobacco. It was a delicacy enjoyed by every single person of importance that visited Strathholm. People like King Terranus, Ufer the Lightbringer, High Lord Fordring, all of them have enjoyed Siabi's specialty. Sadly, Fred stayed in his shop when Strathorn was invaded, swearing on his life that the Scourge would never touch his tobacco. Now he too is a Scourge, and hostile to anyone that dares to touch his products. Through the market row we go, onwards to the next section, and having new people in your group, it was always an awesome experience, as they had no idea of the traps found within the city. Who knows how many adventures were trapped by the gates closing around them, the plague critters eating away at their flesh, or the greedy kind of adventurer, they saw a supply crate as a fast ticket to their epic mount, only for it to crumble in their hands and a terrible disease chipping away at their health. Now, not all of the crates are fakes, though. Some actually contain Strathholm holy water. Curiously enough, it is mentioned in the questline to have been used by the Knights of the Silver Hand as the Scourge Shrefu Strathholm. They stored it inside these small crates, along with other vital supplies, and then distributed them throughout the city. Unfortunately, the citizens, they turned into Scourge reinforcements before the supplies could ever be used. You have to wonder when Arves and his forces had time to do this while they were slaughtering the civilians. All the same, a powerful rare resource against the undead, as well as used in several different quests. Through Market Row we go, and around this area, you can find a rare spawn called Harsinger Forsten. Quite a farmed individual, as he drops an awesome toy, the Piccolo of Flaming Fire. Have you ever felt like making your entire raid team dance to your tunes? Well, now you can, with this Piccolo, take it from the body of poor Forsten. A traveling singer and Piccolo player, whose only crime was being in the doomed city during the calling. He now continues to wander the city in death, unable to accept his tragic fate. Onwards to the Unforgiven, or Lilia as she was called in life, a blade of righteousness amongst her people. After Arthas commanded his forces to purge the city, her sanity was ripped apart from seeing countless innocents die by her hand. She fell on her sword to escape the madness around her, and she now exists as a spectral being, forever denied absolution for her heinous act. That's the official journal description. What a quest, they also make mention of her committing heinous acts against innocents, but in the name of gaining unholy power rather than following Arsus' orders. All the same, we put the spirit to rest and then backtrack to the market row, where Timmy the Cruel is waiting around the corner. Timison was infamous for his savagery on the field of battle. Some speculate that his sadism stemmed from the ceaseless bullying he endured as a child. Now reborn as a scourge monstrosity, his mind shattered. He's tormented by those memories, causing him to answer to the name that he once loathed. At Crusader Square, we come close to the heart of the organization, as we finally encounter the Scarlets. In the original version, they used to be alive, of course, constantly fighting the undead that dared to come close. 
It's beautiful to see how they designed this part of the dungeon to be very similar to the Scarlet Monastery. And one of the first mini-bosses is Malor the Zealous, risking everything to protect the Scarlet Bastion from being desecrated by the undead and us as well. Next to him is a little strongbox containing the Medallion of Faith, which we'll talk about in just a moment. Down we go into the hordes, pretty much their armory. By picking up the blacksmithing plants, we can spawn their hammersmith. Worth to do so, as it prevents them from creating more demonic weaponry. But the real threat down here, that would have to be Cannon Master Willy. As nothing looks more glorious than your ranged players. Innocent and unaware, they stay far away from the boss, so they're safe and they can shoot him, until they figure out that they're actually trash packs spawning at the edge of the room. Fire at will! Trash, which you can then blow up by turning the cannons against them. A nice little mechanic to play around with. You gotta balance out the balls that you have to the damage that you take. Back up we go, onward to our final encounter. Right across of it is Archivist Gelford, a man adept at fire magic, who now watches over the most valued documents of the crusade. On his wall, we find a hidden painting of love and family. A reminder of better times for Tyrion Fordring and his family, a time before his exile. We pick it up to bring it back to his son, and then convince him to get out of the Scarlet Crusade. The damned corrupted organization, corrupted by the dreadlord Belnazar. He's our final boss on this side of the instance. But at the time, nobody really knew what was going on. Nobody knew that Grand Crusader Dafrohan had actually died a long time ago. The Scarlets were ferocious and zealous in their actions. Yet now we realize what exactly has happened. His head is brought back to reveal the truth. Only problem though is that Dreadlords, they can't exactly be killed on Azeroth. They just returned to the Twisting Nether to come back later on. And with the Cataclysm revamp, we saw that Belnazar, he wasn't too happy with the Crusaders. Now they're all brought back in on death, known as the Risen, part of what they tried to eradicate. Crusade Commander Elagor Dawnbringer of the Brotherhood of the Light. He leads us on another campaign into Strathholm. With the Scarlet Sight secure, the former bastion of the Silverhand back into the hands of his rightful owners, we have a fortified location to launch our next assault. This time, assault the undead side, where Alonso's chapel resides, the birthplace of the paladins. It's the only building that the Scourge cannot touch, and will be our forward base of operations in this half of the city. As soon as we step inside, Magistrate Barfilis, he alerts the city of their intruders at the gates, and then runs off to warn Lord Riven there. Getting to the Lord is going to be a little bit tricky, as the Scourge forces, they have upgraded ziggurats that need to be taken down, in order to open up the gates and gain access to the slaughterhouse. I always like to look at this as playing through a Warcraft 3 campaign. A campaign that can quickly go wrong if you don't pull the mobs back. There are so many of them patrolling around that chain pulling, it's a very real threat. On a more positive side, you do have options as to what path you want to take. As long as you clear out the ziggurats, it's really up to you in what order you want to do them. What kind of threats or traps you want to face. In my case, I go for the Nerubian first. Naruba Khan, a fearsome warrior during the War of the Spider. The war between the Lich King and Nerubians. Ultimately, she succumbed to her wounds and was raised into undeath as an obedient minion of the Scourge. Now the Nerubian guards a ziggurat in Strathholm, as fierce as she defended her home in life. You can now decide to move forward past the gate and deal with the trap there, or you could backtrack a little bit, pick up the Blackguard Swordsmith while you're at it, and then take on the Baroness. While she lived, Anastere took what she wanted, no matter the cost. Death has done little to change that. Her soul ripped from her body, Anastere became a banshee, and she has abandoned her love of material trinkets in favor of possessions of a far more sinister kind. As we saw when she tried to convert our paladin buddy into a death knight. And during a battle, she'll try to take over the body of her comrades. Deal enough damage and she'll be forced to leave the vessel and face us herself. Giving us enough time to take her out and clear the ziggurats. 
The fur defender, that is Malachita Pellets, amongst the first to join the cult of the damned, showing tremendous aptitude in harnessing the chill of the grave. Driven by an insatiable desire for power, the mage fervently hones his skills in dark magic to prepare for when he be remade as a lich. Let's not have them add another lich to the ranks. And with the final ziggurat down, our pathway into the slaughterhouse opens up. Around the corner, we first have poor old Magistrate Barfilis who's hanging out. An innocent purged by Arthas and his forces during the culling. The Lich King eventually raised the former Magistrate and commanded the hulking undead monstrosity to guard his ruined home. Let's put him out of his misery and claim the key to the city as our own. Easy access for our next adventure in here. Now at the Slaughter Square, we have the abominations that come into two variations. There's the Venom kind and the Bile Spewing kinds. After these butchers, we have Rammstein showing up, the monstrosity that took Nefanos' life. One of the Scourge's most infamous abominations, a horror stitched together from numerous corpses and empowered by a ceaseless hunger. This monster committed unspeakable atrocities on countless innocent souls when Scourge forces overran the city. We're down to the final lines of defense now. Now they don't mean much these days, but back then having an army of undead rushing towards you, it was pretty damn epic. Not to mention that the Blackguard sentries, they quickly followed after. A bit of crowd control, it goes a long way, until only one is left standing, Baron Rivendare. In life, he was a rich landowner, right here in Strathholm. He was also friends with Kelfuzad, and the latter convinced him to join the cult of the damned. Rivendare eventually became a death knight, and was placed in control of the burning remains of Strathholm. He held the city against the Scarlet Crusade, and even a number of heroes. Some even ventured in here to do a speedrun. Part of a massive questline to get dungeon tier 1 or 2, something like that, it was to run the entirety of Strathholm within 45 minutes. Aim of the game was to save Yasida Harmon before she was executed. Things like the Strathholm Holy Water, it definitely helped it a bunch during these runs, as the damage would clear large packs rather quickly. That medallion of faith we talked about earlier, that comes in to request the aid of Rivendare's son Arius. He lets us know about how he nearly fell from grace, how his faith wavered and the scourge nearly seduced him into becoming a death knight. Sensing his peril, he fled to this sacred place, to the chapel, where he knew he would be safe. To step outside would mean immediate doom for a paladin, but with this medallion of faith, he should have the strength to stand up to his father and remove his vile corruption from the city. And that's exactly what happens. In our final confrontation, the son shows up to help us fight his father, but the battle, it does leave him scarred and wounded. We're told to leave Mir to die, to die in peace. But then, a little bit later on with the Burning Crusade, the Blood Elves were added to the game, and we see Arya show up again. The Blood Elf Paladins, also known as the Blood Knights, they were placed on a quest to show who the true Paladins were, the true masters of the light. It took him into Strathholm, of course, Alonso's chapel, where they extinguished the eternal flames and removed the light's protection. Those inside, they weren't too happy about their actions. Arius, as well as paladin spirits, they tried to defend their chapel from the Blood Knights, but they failed. Arius actually goes down, meaning that the Blood Elves, they got their mount, while the chapel wasn't doing too great. Two instances, two stories in which Arius seemingly dies. But as you can tell by now, dying in Strathholm, it rarely means actually dying. Whereas the original Baron Rivendare, he was moved to Naxxramas and took his spot amongst one of the four horsemen. His son was raised to the Death Knight and now rules over the city. Just another Rivendare to take out, another chance at getting either his very shiny epic sword or the Rivendare's Death Charger. One of my very first videos was actually on how to solder this place, how to farm for this mount. 
very good memories. So yeah, that's the story of Strathholm. Whereas our brothers of the light, they hope that one day, it will once again become a paragon of all that's good in the world. It seems like there's still a lot that needs to happen before death will ever be a possibility. The choices of the past, they've left their everlasting mark, not just on the city, but also the land surrounding it. We have had a couple of glimpses on what's going on in the city after the Cataclysm. For example, in Legion, paladins return to their city for their High Lord Charger mount. A love note to the Paladin Mount quest of old, in which they had to cleanse the mount of Death Knight Dark Reaver. This time around, they go for Shadowmane, the Mount of Arius. Now we go to Rivendare's crypt to confront his specter. Mount up, paladins! We ride! They'll bring up the rear, while we're inside dealing with Rivendare. Where is his body? It should be here. Someone's taken it. This does not bode well. Well, we expected to confront Rivendare. Instead, we see Ramian the Soul Taker, who tries to stand in the way of the Paladins. He shall spread the plague over this land once more, and all will bow before him. Here we've gathered the mightiest Paladins of the world, and under our leadership, we make sure that his plans never come to fruition. Now, it does seem like the undead still have quite a hold over the city. But the Paladins, they're going to keep a closer eye on it. And it does look like the Lich King's influence is definitely diminishing. Manifil's gift, the pentagram inside the slaughterhouse, it seems to be gone now. The scourge equivalent of holy ground, the place where Raz Frostwhisper cut his own neck with a smile upon his face. It could also be a phasing thing, of course. But for now, the pentagram does seem to be gone. And then, in Battle for Azeroth, the city saw darkness, which some would describe as being even worse than the plague, even worse than the culling. This city was turned into a pet battle dungeon. Undead beamed, with shadowy figures pitching us and our battle team in the most epic confrontations the streets has ever known. All the fires and piles of corpses litter the background. We battle our way through the dungeon. What a waste of time this has been. With that, I think we cover pretty much the major things that went down in Strathholm. Honestly, I am very surprised how much story, how many events actually took place here. Such a badass city, man. But yeah, thank you very much for watching, everyone. Subscribe if you like my videos. Leave a like if you enjoyed this one. And until next time, guys. See ya! I'm Alex Afrasiabi. I started at Blizzard March 14th, 2004. The first game I worked on was World of Warcraft. Quests in the game of Warcraft tell you the stories that show you the cool sights, and I was one of a few that put those into the game. Hi, how are you? You never forget your first thing that you add to the game. You just don't. Bingle's missing supplies. It was a quest in Lachmadon. It was the thing that I cut my teeth on. Morladim, he was a rare spawn in Duskwood, and I believe that's his name, it's been so long. He had a rare drop, and it was this really good sword. And of course, me, I'm also a huge gamer. I'm thinking to myself, I just get hired on. Now I can finally figure out where this damn sword comes from. And so I went to the spawner in question, and I said, hey dude, like, how do I get the sword? And he flat out was like, nope. <laughs> and I was so crushed. I was like, are you joking? My sister was giving birth to my first niece, and I had my World of Warcraft bowling shirt with my name on it. I go up and I see my sister, and as I'm coming down, this lady looks at me, she's a nurse, and she's looking at me, she goes, excuse me. I'm like, yeah, she's like, do you play World of Warcraft? I'm like, and I, I do, she's like, I love that game, I play it too, I'm Alliance, I'm this and I'm that. And it was like, I, I think that was the point for me where it sunk in, I'm like, we're doing something bigger than what we imagined.
I'm Hazel, and today I'm bringing you the buzz on how to get the bee mount and other unbelievable bee-themed rewards of 825. I am not sorry. Before you get started, you must meet three requirements. First, you must be Alliance. If you're Horde, not only can you not do any of this, as things stand right now, you can't even ride the mount if it's on your account. I guess bees just hate the Horde. Second, you must be level 120. The intro event won't trigger below that. I tried. And third, you must have either the Bumble's pet or the Seabreeze Bumblebee will also do. I have a guide out that I'll link below on how to get Bumbles, but it will take a minimum of seven days. The Seabreeze Bumblebee, on the other hand, is easier to just grab. That one's off the Storm's Wake rep vendor at Revered for 250 polished pet charms. It's also cageable, so check the auction house. To get started, take that level 120 plus alliance character to the Mildenhall Meadery flight point here. Summon your Bumbles or Seabreeze Bumblebee pet and take him over to Barry. You can't miss him, he's covered in bees. He tells you to follow the green clouds. At this point, you can fly yourself directly to the hive located here. You don't need to do anything with the bee farts at all, they're just pointing the way. Approach the hive and both Barry and a big angry bee will show up. Next, turn around and walk a little ways to this point here and loot your first thin jelly. It is the only spot that you can get that first one. Show that to the big bee, and then talk to Barry who will dance with her, and then you can enter the hive. Give your jelly to the goo bee on your left, which will give you 20 rep with the honeyback hive. Congrats, you are now officially started. Until you've done all that, you won't be able to see jelly nodes and the rare will not give you rep, so it's important to do that beginning in order. So now you've got two different bee-related bars to fill. The goo bee has its own friendship meter, and there's also the honeyback hive rep. Those are separate, but you tend to get both together, so it doesn't actually matter that much. Your only source of friendship is jelly. You get jelly from a few different sources and turn it into your goo bee. Each thin jelly gives 5 friendship and 20 rep, so you'll need 700 thin jelly per friendship level. There are 3 tiers of friendship with this thing, so you'll need a total of 2100 jelly to cap both your friendship and your rep. You can also find rare rich jelly and epic royal jelly worth 4 and 8 thin jellies each respectively. You can trade your jellies at the hive for better ones, but the rep turn in math checks out dead even. Trade your jellies if you need better ones for the vendor or just want to click less turning them in, otherwise don't worry about it. So there's three sources of jelly. First are the jelly deposit nodes. They look like this and you'll find them all over Stormsong Valley. If you're not seeing any, go back and make sure that you gave that intro bit to the harvester. Jelly deposits are shared like other nodes, so multiple people can loot the same one. As you gain rep, the nodes will give you more jelly. At Honored, you'll start seeing the blue rich jellies occasionally drop, and at Revered, you have a chance to see the epic royal jellies. They can also drop consumable bee hats and the jelly magnet, which gives you more jelly from deposits for half an hour. I also recommend getting yourself a few sets of monal hardened stirrups to let you gather nodes without dismounting. Once you hit Revered Reputation, you can buy the Bee Holder's Goggles from Barry the Beekeeper, who hangs out right outside the hive. They'll cost you 20 rich jelly, but speed up farming significantly. If you don't want to invest the jelly, see if you can get into a group with someone who has and follow them around for a faster farm. The second source is the Honeyback Harvester Events. Those are rare events you can find where you'll fend off waves of attackers to protect a friendly bee. At the end, you'll loot a fresh jelly deposit with, again, jelly and potential goodies like the magnet. You can start an event if you find a friendly Honeyback Harvester NPC, which can rarely spawn in these locations. You can do these multiple times per day, and I recommend keeping an eye on the group finder and general chat for Harvester events to join. 
They're reportedly dropping more and better loot depending on the rares that spawned in the event, which may or may not be tied to how quickly you kill the waves. Your third jelly source is our good friend, the Honey Smasher. We don't really know much about him, but he's clearly living his best life. The Honey Smasher is an elite rare with a ton of health that spawns pretty often up here north of the hive. Kill him once per day for 500 reputation and some jelly, among other goodies like the hats and magnet. You'll probably want some help, so check the group finder. You do still get your rewards even if you're in a raid group, so fill it up. My only other tip for him is don't pull him too far from his spawn point. He tethers and resets really early and that's just a bad day. Time for an important fun jelly fact. It does not bind to you. At all. You can farm jelly on your alts and send it to your main, post it on the auction house, buy it on the auction house, all that good stuff. So that's how you grind and here's what you get. The mount reward is of course the Honeyback Harvester's Harness. To get the mount, all you need to do is raise your Gooby through three friendship levels to mature and then complete a short questline. You technically don't need the rep at all for the mount, but you'll get it anyways while turning in jelly and higher rep will make your farming go faster. There are also three new butterfly pets you can get from this. The sun-soaked flitter and poppy both have a chance to drop from the fresh jelly deposit at the end of the harvester defense events. The crimson skipper butterfly has a chance to drop from the honey smasher. Those are all cageable, so you can buy or sell them on the auction house and they are usable on horde characters. If you want more colors or just a pretty butterfly sooner than that, that model is also available in the blue flitter vendor pet and leafy flutterwings Lildazar wild pet. There are a few other items you can get from the three sources, such as the cosmetic bee pet hats and BB gun, but those are consumables and not permanent toys. The other vendor items, like the Tide Bloom Honey and Butterfly Net, are not tied to any collectibles and so far seems super not worth it. So, with all that in mind, I have three recommendations. First, if you're not in a big hurry but want the bee mount at some point, just unlock the rep and then kill the honey smasher every day. That 500 rep per day will put you in a much better position to start farming whenever you do get around to it. The other benefit of waiting is potentially less competition for jelly notes. Second tip, save any jelly magnets you find until either after you get the bee goggles or until you're in a reliable group with someone who has them. With that buff up, ignore everything but jelly notes. And third, consider using an add-on to track the jelly spawns and plan your route. I am using GatherMate 2 with the Jelly Deposit Locations plugin to mark on my map any spot that I've looted a jelly. That makes it a lot easier for me to plan my route and then remember which areas to avoid. And so that is the bee content of 825. Thanks for watching, happy farming, and have a wonderful, wonderful day. Bye! Alright, this brings us to the end of episode 105 of Cops Run Radio. As always, I would like to take this opportunity to thank the contributors that provided content for this show. Noble87, Blizzard Entertainment, Mad Season Show, Charm, and Hazelnutty Games. Thank you so very much, everyone, for allowing us to use your content. Last but not least, I would like to thank Patty Madsen for her awesome intros and outros that she provided for the show. I hope to see you at BlizzCon Patty, provided that you are there, which I totally hope that you are, given the way that they set up the Dark Lady's story as a cliffhanger. I hope that she is going to play a major part in at least 8.2, if not 9.0, and following expansions, multiple 
Lizard, please do not kill her off. I would totally not like that. I mean, I can't do anything about it if they should choose to do so, but again, yeah. Anyway, thank you, Patty, for all the work that you've done for the show, for the game, and also I would like to welcome you as a fellow World of Warcraft player, since apparently, according to some of her tweets, she has started playing World of Warcraft now. I might ask her about her initial experiences sometime in the not-so-distant future and see what she thinks about it. Not sure if I can get it done for the next show, how much work she has to do, but I'm definitely planning on asking her to give me some feedback. So, again, without any specific date or anything, I'm definitely going to see if I can get her to do a mini interview on that aspect sometime, I would say sometime this year. So with that said, thank you very much everyone and see you in episode 106. I hope you have enjoyed your time with the Forsaken of Cops Run Radio this episode. Should you have an idea for a little segment of your own, I would love for you to become part of the cast. Or if you are a creator of Warcraft original or parody music and would like to be featured on the show, contact us at copsrunradiomail at gmail.com or on Twitter at copsrunradio. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash copsrunradio. Contact information for our contributors is available on our website, crr.podbean.com along with the links for the segments played on the episode and other information. Corpse Run Radio is a non-profit fan podcast. All segments, music and sound effects are used with permission. Thank you for listening. Now go out, my minions. Let nothing stand in your way. Until next time.